Thank you, Dave. No, that's lovely. Um, well, good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you at 9.30. I'm, as some of you know, I'm really a, an 11.30 guy, uh, so I'm usually tucked up in bed about this time. Only joking, I'm not really. Um, but it's wonderful to be here, and especially on Pentecost Sunday. And I just thought it'd be lovely to start just by praying for Pete and Sammy, and especially Pete tonight uh, in Canterbury with Justin Welby. It'd be lovely just to pray for you and for Justin, that you would really uh, speak uh, amazingly, that the Holy Spirit would be there with you, and that we are all here as Emmaus behind you, and that you will know that. So let's just pray very quickly. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that there is tonight, and the wonderful place that you have uh, put Pete and Justin Welby. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to be there in Canterbury Cathedral, in Winchester Cathedral, all around the country. And we pray above all that you would be with Pete, that you'd steady him, that you'd give him words to say, you'd give him grace, you'd give him courage, you'd give him everything he needs. And Father, that through this evening, many lives would be changed and people's hearts would be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking today at friendship friendship with others. And if you've been with us on the series, if you've been with us on the journey, you'll know that last week Adam Heather spoke brilliantly on friendship when friendships are broken. And he talked about contested friendships. He talked about frayed friendships and friendships where patience, grace, and challenge are present. And it's quite daunting to stand up in front of you uh, to speak today about friendship because many of you know me very well. Many of you know me as a friend. You know my strengths, such as they are, and you know my many weaknesses. So if you feel like heckling, please, please don't. <laughs> um, if you think that's not right, then, then tell me afterwards. <laughs> um, I don't know how many of you like Bear Grylls television programs, but I like them. I like Bear, and I like them because as a student, I got to know Bear. Long before he was famous, he was just Bear. And I was living in London in the early 1990s in a student house with six others. One of them is sitting in the front row here at Emmaus Road, Richard Myers. And Bear used to drive down. We were all students doing different things. Some were doing chartered surveying, some were doing accountancy, I was doing law as it happened. And Bear used to drive down from his barracks late at night on a motorbike and he'd want to party. We were all kind of studying, we had exams the next day or whatever, and Bear would want to just kind of stay up practically all night and party. And then he'd sleep on the floor of one of the guys in the house and then he'd get up early and, his, and he'd bike back to his barracks. And Bear, as you'll know, has always been a keen mountaineer. And at the age of 23, he was the youngest person at that time to climb Everest. An amazing, absolutely amazing achievement. Now, I'm not a mountaineer. So I'm, I, I, my only knowledge of mountaineering comes from people like Bear. But I have once been roped up on the top of a very large glacier in France with six others 
heading down a very steep ridge, skis on my back, avalanche transceivers uh, tucked under my top, a rucksack on my back with pickaxe, shovel, ropes, and crampons on my feet. We were over 12,000 feet. The air was very thin, limited oxygen. The sun was shining, and we went with two French guides, mountain guides. And I really felt for a moment a little bit like Bear. I want you to picture the scene. You're right at the top, and you've got uh, uh, at the top of the cable car, there are a number of people there who didn't have any guides. And the French guides were very clear. They said, look, if you haven't got a guide, you don't go down. You literally go back down on the uh, cable car, and you're not able to do this route. And so a number of people were turned away. And we were at the top, and there was a sort of eerie silence. So there were about six of us, and there was an eerie silence as we roped up. And we roped up to these two French guides, and we tested our avalanche transceivers to make sure that they worked. And we headed out into quite thin mountain air. And then we started a 20 to 25 minute descent down a very steep ridge, roped together. And either side of the ridge, if you can imagine it, there was a sheer drop. So if you fell and you, you weren't roped together, you were on your own and you fell down, that was it. It was a sheer drop. So falling either side was not an option. And we were roped together in order of size and in order of weight. And the thing about being roped together is that you can only really go at a pretty steady pace. You have to communicate and you have to go at a steady pace. And if the leading guide goes too quickly, then what happens is you get pulled down. And, and, and there's a lot of shouting goes on and there's a lot of communication. And if somebody in the group falls, then the idea is that the others in the group hold the fall. And if that happens, then again, there's a lot of shouting down the line. I had a, a, an American guy in front of me. I had a Brit behind me. And on the descent, we were communicating all the time. We were just, whatever, every step. Because if you went a little bit too quickly or you lost your footing, there was the guy behind you was roped up to you, and the guy in front of you was roped up. And at the back, we had a guide who, um, who was anchoring the group. He was about 50 and incredibly fit, and he knew, he knew the mountains like the back of his hand. He just, he'd been there since he was a boy, and he'd climbed those mountains pretty much every day, and he knew every inch of those mountains. On a beautiful day, the mountains look beautiful. The ice fields look amazing. But when the fog and the cloud comes down, in a snowstorm, the ice fields can be treacherous and people can die. They lose their way and they fall into crevasses. And one of the group that I was in, uh, his friend had died in those very same ice fields some years before. And this for him was an emotional tribute to his friend. And as we went down, he was obviously very emotional about it because he was remembering the friend that he had. And we made our way down the ridge. We reached a pretty flat slope. And at that point, we unroped. We took our crampons off. We put our skis on from the back of our, what we've been carrying on our backs. And then we skied down about 20 kilometers through the ice fields, through the crevasses, and into the valley below. And when we reached the bottom, I'm not going to lie, there was a real sense of elation. There was a sense of achievement. There was a sense of team. 
guys that actually I didn't know particularly well. I'd been raped together with them. But we, we'd reached the bottom. We'd, we'd got away. We'd done it together. And we'd done it unscathed. My text this morning is rather unusually, and it's not meant to be depressing at all, but it is rather unusually from Job. And it caught my eye around the subject of friendship. And I think you'll find, when we, we're just going to do a whistle-stop tour of Job, you'll think Job is a pretty amazing guy. And I've just asked um, Cheryl Myers to come up and read uh, a couple of sections of Job 1 and a few verses from Job 2. So starting Job 1. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest among all the people in the east. Then going on, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Then on to Job 2, verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tanamanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was.
Thank you, Cheryl. Anyone have any friends that sit on the ground with them for seven days and seven nights without saying a word? Dave? No? It's pretty amazing. Anyone have any friends called Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? No. So Job loses his material possessions. He loses his family. He loses his health. And the Bible tells us about three of his friends. Eliphaz from Teman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from the land of Neymar. And these three friends dialogue, as you go through Job, they dialogue with Job through the rest of the book about his life and about his suffering. And if you look at it, it's pretty honest dialogue. They're pretty rude to Job at times. Um, Bildad, in chapter 8, says this. He says, are you finally through with your windy speech? Anyone have any, a windy friend like, like Bildad? Um, and Zophar says to Job, Job, you upset me. So it's quite, it, it's quite honest. It's quite open. They're trying to make sense of Job's challenges and the challenges um, that God is throwing or, or allowing him to endure. And then you fast forward right to the end of the book in chapter 42, and God says this to Eliphaz. He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you didn't speak the truth about me as my servant Job did. And God then asks them to make a sacrifice of seven bulls and seven rams. Then right at the end, chapter 42, fast forward, verse 10, it says, after Job had prayed for his three friends, even after all their many insults to him, the Lord made Job prosperous again, gave him twice as much as he'd had previously. And then he blessed the last part of Job's life even more than he'd blessed the first part. Apparently, the Bible says, there were no other women in the whole world as beautiful as Job's daughters. That's quite cool, actually, after having suffered all of that. So you get a nice ending to what is a pretty rough life story. Biblical friendship, if you just look at the uh, slide at the back, biblical friendship, Christian friendship, involves roping up. And if you look at what happens in Job... His friends rope up to him, and they try in their own way with him to make sense of his challenges, his suffering, and they advise him as best they can. And Job takes exception to that sometimes, and um, they advise him as best they can. And it's a story, a journey, if you like, of wonderful friendship. And as Job knew well, life can be exhilarating and it can be challenging. And in our time, the Christian life is no different. There are ups and there are downs. And what each of us needs is to have friends that we can rope up to as we navigate through life in the good times and in the bad times. And for Job, as you see, for a lot of the time, the times were pretty challenging. Now, if I can be personal just for a moment, as a family, we've been really blessed uh, with wonderful families that we've got to know over the years, and we've shared experiences, and we feel as if we have roped up to them, and many of those families are here at Emmaus Road, and we're getting to know a number of new families. As new families come in to Emmaus, we've had the real pleasure of getting to know a number of new families, and it's been a real blessing. And the model is very simple. It's being with their, there with them 
to enjoy the happy times and to be with them in the challenges and when it gets difficult. But as with descending a steep ridge, it's two-way. And I would hope that in each case, if you ask those families, they would say that we were there for them, that just as they are there for us, we are there for them to enjoy the happy times and to enjoy uh, and share the support when things get difficult. And as some of you know, as a family, we've been going through some challenging times. One of our family has been struggling, continues to struggle with depression and anxiety. And that depression and anxiety has been going on for many months. And actually, it's been the most challenging time in our 18 years of marriage. So Katie and I have been married just about 18 years, and it has been incredibly challenging. And the one thing, if there was one thing that's kept us going, it, it is families at Emmaus Road who have brought food to our door. They've sent texts at key moments. They've prayed with one of us. They've taken me for a quiet beer on, a, on, a, on a, an evening. They've taken the children, or one of the children, for a play date. They prayed for us as a family. And especially at times when it's hard to see God's hand and his presence in our house. It's been hugely encouraging and very humbling. And when we might have slipped down the ridge, <clears throat> friends have roped up and they've held us. And they continue to do that. Just on Thursday, a friend who I've known for over 30 years came over and he prayed for us as a family midweek as we battle the depression that actually is afflicting all of us because it doesn't just sit with one of us, it sits with all of us and we fight it together. And being honest, it would be difficult to do it without them. Equally, there are individuals for both Katie and for myself who have been friends over many, many years or they've become friends recently, friends we've met at Emmaus, who on an individual basis are wonderful friends. And a number of them, again, are sitting here in this theater. They've been friends, they've been there for us as individuals over many months and many years and I hope and pray that they would say the same of us. These friends know us well enough that as someone once said, they know the song in our hearts and can sing it back to us when we have forgotten the words. And I have a handful of guys, a number of them in this room, of whom I can say that. When I've forgotten the words of the song, they can sing it back to me. And a number of them inspire me every day when the inspiration that comes from here has gone. So I'm not an expert in friendship, but I want to offer just a few practical thoughts for us as a community in 2016. Here's the first. Make time to invest in friendships and build them through experiences. Make time to invest in friendships and build them through experiences. Now, everybody does friendship a little bit differently. So if you're an extrovert or you're an introvert, you will do friendship a little bit differently. My wife is more on the introverted side, as some of you will know. I'm probably more on the extrovert side. But 
and, and so introverts and extroverts will do things a little bit differently. But the common theme is making time to invest in friendships. And within Emmaus, there are huge opportunities to do that. So you've got collectives. You've got, if you're a middle-aged lad and you like banter and you like curry, you've got Malbec. You've got the women's coffee morning. You've got family outreach. You've got alpha. You've got focus. There are so many opportunities to make friends and to find out and to rope up with people. So make time to invest. Outside of Emmaus is just as important. So in your road, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, the same thing. Make time to invest in friendships. I had lunch this week, actually, with a very old friend of mine who I've known since we were very small. So we kind of grew up together. And um, we were actually at university. We weren't at school together, but we were at university together. And his father died very recently. And for one reason or another, and I was very sad about it, I wasn't able to go to his father's funeral. And I wanted to say sorry. I wanted to just look, look at him and say, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to go to your father's funeral. I know it's been tough, and I've known his father all my life. And uh, we were having lunch. I went to his office, and we had lunch. And he said to me that as he nursed his father in his last days, he was reminded that life is not about the material things. It's not about money. It's not about the possessions, the bigger the bonus that we have, or the fast car, or the next big house. He says, I was reminded in my father's last days that actually it's friendships, it's family that really matter. It's the relationship that we have with God. And it was a wonderful reminder. And friendships involve different things at different times. So I tried to write a little list of what, uh, I, in my experience, what friendships involve. So there's laughter, there's joy, there's counsel, there's tears, there's pain, there's grace, there's empathy, support, encouragement, forgiveness, a listening ear, a willingness to give, an ability to receive, sacrifice, taking initiative, inspiring, demonstrating love, loyalty, and faithfulness. All of those qualities. And if we have a wonderful friendship, you'll find a lot of those qualities in that friendship. So invest in friendships. Build memories. That's the first point. Secondly, communication is key. The text, the WhatsApp, the timely email. Communication is key. And getting to know the language of a friend is critical. Now, for some people, that might be flowers. For some people, it might be a beer at a critical moment. And I've got to say, girls, and my wife in particular, girls are particularly good at this. They're brilliant at it. Just knowing the, the, the language of a friend. It might be a game of golf. It might be a dog walk. You know, I've got one friend who, um, he will text me randomly and just say, do you want to walk the dog? Just as simple as that. Do you want to walk the dog? And I'll text back, and often it will be at a really timely moment and we'll go for a walk and we'll just chew the cud and we'll you know what's going on how are the family how are his family how are my family and we'll just communicate it might be going for a coffee midweek just sending a text and saying you know what how about a coffee communication is key 
The next thing I think that looking back over my life, I'm very grateful for, and it's something that for the next generation I think is key, is building Christian friendships in the next generation. So um, I met my wife when she was 15. I used to get a lot of jit for this, actually, by the way. But she was 15 and I was 18. And um, we became friends at that age. And now we're in our 40s, so we go back a long, long way. And one of the wonderful things is that actually Christian friendships, if you start them at that age, are, are, as they develop, it's like a kind of a vintage wine. Do you know what I mean? It just gets, it's just fantastic. And so one of the things I think which is wonderful is that at Emmaus we have great children's work. We have a wonderful children's um, program, Christian families. And so the opportunity to build friendships from a really young age is amazing. And from Christian friendship can obviously develop Christian marriages. And uh, these things obviously have to flow naturally. You can't force them. But um, it's, it can be a wonderful thing. And old Christian friends are really fantastic. The next generation, building Christian friendships. Um, the rope goes two ways. So I don't know if you can see it there, but actually it's all about supporting one another. Shakespeare said this. He said, a friend is someone who knows you as you are, understands where you have been, accepts what you've become, and still gently allows you to grow. And that should go two ways. So if you have a friendship that you feel is, you know, perhaps a little one way, I don't think that's how it should be. I think real friendships go two ways. So the rope goes up and it goes down. And we need friends who will stand with us, who will stand with us when our faith is weak, when we cannot see the path, when we have no voice left to sing, and when the pain of life has for a time dulled our senses. But we also need to be prepared to do the same for others. We need to be like Job's three friends at the beginning of their story. The rope needs to go both ways. Now just a word um, Adam mentioned last week about loneliness and, and friendship and where, where sometimes people find it difficult to make friends, or, or just for whatever reason. Um, perhaps it's, it, it is that actually you don't find it easy to reach out and, and make friends. You feel alone on the mountain. And I just encourage you to just to, to pray for friends. Pray that God would raise up people in your life who will support you, who will rope up with you, and who will be a source of friendship, fun, and support. And it's a challenge for us as a community as well. Because we need to be continually reaching out to people who, to those kinds of people for whom loneliness may be um, something that they battle with. We need to reach out and we need to help them to fight the loneliness and to rope up to them and provide support where we can. Just a word on, on prayer. Prayer for friends. It's sort of, the way I look at it a little bit is like kitting up. You're, you're, you're putting your crampons on, you're putting your ropes on, you're... you're when you're praying for friends, it's a wonderful thing. And when friends are praying for you, it's almost as if they are putting on the equipment uh, that will enable you, that will hold you when your foot slips. And um, I love it that right at the end of Job, Job prays for his friends. 
It's just a, a short verse. He prayed for his friends. So even after all the insults, all the dialogue that they had, all the, the, the sort of challenge that, that he had from his friends, right at the end, he prays for them. And that unlocks blessing for him. It's a wonderful thing. You see the connection between the prayer for his friends and then the blessing that flows from that. And um, I'm, I'm, we're grateful for the friends that we have that are praying for us. And in turn, I know that there are friends of mine who are struggling in different ways. And so I pray for them. Finally, take every opportunity for friendship. Take every opportunity for friendship. Just a final story. It's a fleeting story, but it, it, I think it illustrates what I'm trying to get across here. I was coming back on the train the other day, and um, I, was chat I, I, I got chatting to a guy who I don't know very well at all. So he's a, he's a fellow parent, actually, at school. So I've seen him in the distance, and um, I, I don't know him well. He lives in a different village. But I was coming back, and I was chatting to him, and um, he's a pretty successful guy. I'd say he's in sort of late 40s, four kids good career in the city and he was on his way home and he said to me how are you doing I said well um, you know between you and me on the 715 from Waterloo I've had a few challenges it's been quite tough and I shared a little bit and I said to him that one of the family was going through some tough times and uh, was facing depression and that as a family we were dealing with that and he said to me Literally, between Woking and Guildford, he said to me, you know what? He said, um, my wife of 25 years is suffering from terrible depression. And he said, she's been in hospital for six weeks. My marriage is breaking up as a result. I've known her since we were 19, and I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. And behind the smart suit, there was a regular guy dealing with the same issues that I was dealing with except that in his case, it was his wife. And we got off the train, we chatted for a few minutes at the entrance to Guildford Station, and I said to him, uh, uh, without knowing if he's a Christian or not, I said to him, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you, and I'll pray for your marriage, and I'll pray for your kids. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to build on that opportunity. So I want to find a time where I can maybe have lunch with him in the city and chat a little bit more about what he's going through and uh, the struggles that he's having. Take every opportunity for friendship. Because individuals and individual friendships build community. And the Greek word is koinonia. It just means community. It means sort of rope together, a rope togetherness. And they're a powerful vehicle, friendships, through which God's work in the world, in our area, in Guildford, and actually more broadly, can be furthered. Do you remember the story of the paralyzed man in Luke, Luke 5? It's his friends that try to put him in front of Jesus. There's a big crowd, and you remember they couldn't find their way. They couldn't actually get to Jesus. And so they carry him onto the roof, and they make an opening in the tiles of the roof, and then they bring him, and they let him down through with the ropes. They let him down on his bed, into the middle of the group, and they lay him in front of Jesus. And Luke says this. He says, when Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said, my friend, your sins are forgiven. And then he tells the man, you remember, to get up, pick up his bed, and go home. And some of us 
are feeling like that paralyzed man. And it's the prayers and the actions and the support and the encouragement of our friends that will bring us back to Jesus and will bring us to a place of healing. And for some of us, we are those friends. One or, uh, uh, one or more of our friends needs us uh, at this particular time. It's a difficult time for them, and we need to take our turn on the ropes and dig in for them. And that can be through prayer, through just practical support, in any other way that we can. And we can then lower them down through the roof, metaphorically, and bring them before Jesus. If we could run with that model of friendship at Emmaus, how wonderful would that be? How transforming would that be of our community? Helen Keller said this, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. May we in Emmaus be friends in the dark and friends in the light to thousands within Guildford and around the world. Then we shall reflect our Heavenly Father, the ultimate friend, the perfect friend, the perfect friend to all. And in the words of my favorite hymn, a hymn that stands for me as a statement of faith, even in the darkest of times, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. All thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen.